Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We're going to kick off. We're recording this uh, unusually uh, on a Thursday afternoon rather than on a Friday for various unavoidable reasons. But uh, tell us how the market's going this week and how investment trusts are faring, Simon. Well, as you say, it's a short week as far as we're concerned. And so far in the first three days of the week, investment companies found themselves in positive territory, up 0.8%, slightly behind the wider UK market, which was up 1.1%. But even as we record this on the Thursday afternoon, the markets have seen a slump of about 2 2.5% so far during the day. So who knows, we'll end up for the week overall. Um, suffice to say, market conditions still are a bit choppy. So far, year to date, just worth reminding people, the investment company sector probably down about 18% or so. That compares with a decline about 3% for the wider UK market. And we're still seeing uh, discount volatility. They've probably narrowed in a little bit over the first three working days of the week, in from about 9.2% to 8.8%. But one suspects, given another step down in the market, we'll see those discounts widen out again. But what's the news from the market this week? Well, I think probably the war in Ukraine, sadly, still looms large in people's thinking. Certainly, there seems to be no obvious end in sight. And the news this week that NATO remains on high alert and increasing forces in Eastern Europe. Uh, we also saw a technical default from Russia on its debt. And that's the first time apparently that's happened in over 100 years but um, very much a roller coaster condition, particularly for the technology companies on the market. I think the Nasdaq was down about 3% for one day uh, this week on the back of poor consumer confidence numbers. Uh, obviously, we're coming to the end of the first half of the year. The S&P looks like it's going to be down over 20%. And that apparently is the worst first half of a year performance since 1970. And obviously, that reflects inflation and recessionary concerns. However, you know, there is some positive news out there, certainly uh, positive signs that the Chinese economy has seen a little bit of an uptick. Some of the, the economic measures there, confidence measures have gone positive. And it's worth reminding people that the MSCI China index, which was actually down about 27% at one stage in March, a year to date, is now about flat on the year it was, certainly when we're recording this podcast. So it's been a bit of a white knuckle grip ride so far this year. And uh, suffice to say, there are probably more of the same to come. Yes, well, I think we did uh, anticipate that to some extent. But if the volatility is the sort of key aspect of this, I think we've seen a lot of things going up, going down. Obviously, that's what it means. I mean, I've noticed in the last couple of days, we've seen bond yields coming off and uh, falling and uh, also the stock market falling. Uh, as you say, the war is important. But also, I think, you know, everybody is now talking about possibility of recession, whereas before, you know, only a month ago, they were talking mainly about the prospect of higher inflation without thinking it through necessarily. And so that combination is not particularly good news. On the other hand, you know, if uh, bond deals are falling, then uh, bond prices are stabilising. And so there's a little bit more balance between the two asset classes instead of them both going down at the same time together, uh, which has been the experience so far this year, very unusually. And I also noticed that uh, fact about 1970 being the last time the S&P was down this much in the first six months. Well, you know, that unfortunately doesn't prove anything in in markets, but it's an interesting observation nonetheless. It has been pretty relentless uh, sell-off. Well, we talked about the investment trust sector itself, and uh, there have been one or two notable highlights this week. I mean, I've noticed, as you mentioned, China. I mean, the Chinese investment trusts have perked up. 
significantly. They're showing up on the best movers of the week. And also um, we've seen a little bit of uh, improvement in some cases on uh, private equity. Their uh, share prices are up, even if their NAVs are not doing that well. Do you detect a lot of demand for Chinese investment trusts? Are they coming back into favour? Would you say that, Simon? Yeah, well, we can look at the numbers, really. The numbers would suggest that certainly people are looking at them again. I mean, there has been a really decent rebound over the last two or three months. So just to put some numbers around that. And if you just look at the last month alone, actually, the share price of JP Morgan China Growth and Income Investment Trust up 31%, Bailey Giver China Growth Trust up 30%, uh, Fidelity China Special Sits not too far behind it, up 20%, and Aberdeen China up 16% to complete the set. Now, they're still down if you look over one year. This is the point about the whole roller coaster. But it has been a sharp rebound for the China-focused funds. And if you look at the ratings on which they trade at the moment, well, we've got the JP Morgan Fund on a, on a premium at the moment, probably about 1% or 2%. That compares to an average of 3% discount over the previous 12 months. Um, the other two, oh, the Bailey Gifford Fund and the Fidelity Fund, probably on about 2-3% discount. That's certainly a little bit tighter than we've seen on average over the previous 12 months. Uh, Aberdeen China still on a uh, 14% discount, but that's got a, quite a, a different shareholder base and also a shorter track record that adopted the Chinese equities approach relatively recently. But certainly people are looking at this area and obviously on the back of some of the commentary from the investment managers involved. So I think we talked a few podcasts ago about Dale Nichols, the manager of Fidelity China. We talked about what the investment team at JP Morgan had to say. They pointed out that they thought actually the Chinese equity situation was quite interesting. There was quite a lot of value there. And they certainly put their money where their mouth is by increasing their, their gearing on both those funds. So, so far, very, very short time period. But so far, that looks like a good decision. And obviously, that uh, decision looks like anticipating the end of the COVID lockdown, among other things. It's interesting also, though, just looking at the wider market. I think we mentioned last week what's happened to metal prices and things. You know, Some of the commodities are sold off, which are also consistent with this general picture of people fretting now about economic growth rather than uh, being obsessed as much as they were with higher inflation. But it's a very early days to know whether this reversal of trends is going to uh, continue or not. But I thought the Chinese one was interesting because, as you say, a good example of where you know, you'd hear managers talking when their share prices are falling. Well, they would say that anyway. But in this case, where you actually put your money where your mouth is, you say increase the gearing and actually speak very positively about something rather than just making the kind of routine noises about, well, you know, things all get better. That's That can be a useful signal, can it not? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, actions speak louder than words, frankly. So, I mean, it's one of the things that we always look at with investment managers. I mean, invariably, they tend to be bullish or certainly the glass is always half full but it's always worth looking at where their, their gearing is now in some cases they'll just keep a kind of neutral gearing level of whatever five to ten percent but others will use it more dynamically and i think that's can be quite an interesting indicator okay so we can move on and talk about uh, some fundraising not that much news this week on this floor but there's still some and first off we've got digital nine infrastructure ticket dgi nine which is proposing to raise some money yeah, that's right. And, and well, there's two elements to this. They've announced quite a big acquisition, actually. So this is a 48% equity stake in an entity called Arquiva Group. They're going to buy that from the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board in a deal valued at £459 million sterling. Now, that's going to be funded by about £300 million in cash. And they've got some loan notes as well for the balance. But um, consistent with their investment mandate, this entity is a UK-based data network and communication service provider. Uh, so that obviously fits in with what they do. But Digital Nine Infrastructure have announced a proposed placing 
by way of an accelerated book build process for no less than 110p per share. So we don't know exactly what the, the placing price will be, but we know it will be no less than that level. Now, that price represents a 3% discount to the closing price just ahead of when they made the announcement and a premium of 5% to their NAV at the end of December. And the proceeds will be used to partly fund this acquisition and also to release some of the credit facility. And they also made the point they've got a near-term pipeline valued at £510 million. So this placing closes on the 7th of July, which is Thursday next week. Okay, so this potentially looks like good news for this particular company, one of uh, two relatively new investor trusts that specialise in uh, digital assets. Well, two things here. One is, remind us uh, what a book building process is. How does that differ from standard offers for subscription, that kind of thing? How does it work? And uh, secondly, uh, remind us, you know, what will this do to the, this particular company, assuming that the placing is a success? Yes. Well, just to, again, to put some numbers around this, I mean, you're right. It's, it has been a successful company. They last raised money back in January last year. They raised about £95 million at that stage at a price of 108p. I've got them at a screen price at the moment, just above 110p, which is obviously where they've said that the book build process will be no less than. In terms of the market cap, I mean, they've grown this fund very impressively. I mean, they've got a market cap of about £901 million already. So obviously, depending on how much they raise this time round, assuming they are successful, but then that would push that up, one would assume, to a billion or even beyond. So for a relatively recent launch, that's quite an impressive rate of progress. In terms of the book build, I mean, it's a slightly unusual way of doing it. I mean, it would suggest to me that there is a kind of natural limit, a natural capacity of this, though I haven't actually seen them disclose that number. And they will try to build the book around that capacity and then price it accordingly. The fact that the share price on the screen is sitting around about 110, in other words, the price they're looking to do it, I don't know if that's a, probably a signal that it doesn't seem to be oversubscribed at this stage, but we'll find out. I mean, certainly, if you look at the issuance market year to date, and we've talked about this on a number of occasions, it has been difficult. And as much as we haven't seen a single IPO in the first half of this year, and you've got to go back quite a few years until you, you can find a similar instance. But also, it's been dominated by demand for infrastructure funds, renewable energy, probably in particular, but yeah, even more specialist infrastructure funds like Digital Nine. So it'd be very interesting to see how this one turns out. I think overall, though, you'd expect quite a quiet summer for issuance uh, in general. And uh, we talked before about this. I mean, like many other infrastructure trusts, it's actually offering a yield of some sort, but it's uh, it's still relatively early in its history, as you said. So has it had time to build up to decent uh, dividend yield uh, record or something you can talk about as being uh, one of the attractions? Yeah, so it has paid some dividends to date, but again, it's you know very early days. According to the data in front of me, it's paid four quarterly dividends of one and a half P a go. So that gives it a yield on a historic base of about 5.4%. And there is another one out there as well, Cordiant Digital Infrastructure. And just quickly, how does that compare in terms of size, rating and yield, as far as you can tell from your wonderful array of numbers in front of you? <laughs> from all the numbers flashing away at me. So Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, that's trading around about NAV or so at the moment. It's got a market cap of about 812 million pounds, so just a little bit smaller than Digital 9. As you say, they came to the market about the same time, and they're probably a little bit behind them in terms of uh, building a dividend track record. So I've got them down as paying two quarterly dividends of 1.5p so far, which gives them a yield of about 2.9%, though I suspect their target yield is higher than that. 
Okay, well, that's an interesting one to watch. It's an interesting company, Digital Nine Infrastructure. It's, it's in some respects, it's more like an operating company than like a conventional fund, but it's an interesting one, one to watch. Let's move on and talk briefly about DP Aircraft. DP Aircraft One, I should say, take a DPA. This is one of these aircraft leasing companies that came to the market quite a long time ago now and have had a very, very torrid time because of the combination of events that have happened since there, among other things. Uh, but tell us what's going on with this one. Uh, they're looking to raise some money, and uh, why are they doing that, and uh, what are they proposing? Yeah, to be honest, this isn't going to be the dial overall of uh, fundraising year to date. I mean, what they've basically announced is they're looking to raise $750,000, basically to provide additional working capital. And without getting too bogged down into the details of this, exactly as you said, they've, they've got two remaining aircrafts which are leased to Thai Airways. They need um, some more basically working capital to effectively to keep operating. They've got a cash balance of about half a million dollars at the moment. And it's a slightly complicated deal with regard to these lease arrangements and the debt that stands against them. So I think that's probably reflected in the share price. I've got it on about an 87% discount to its NAV at the moment. Yeah. So this one is basically struggling to stay alive, essentially. That's, that's what we uh, can say about that. And uh, just in brief terms, can you tell us a little bit about why these aircraft leasing companies have run into such trouble over the last uh, few years. I mean, when they set out, they were quite popular, weren't they? People thought they were quite a good, useful addition to the investment trust universe. Yes, they were quite popular. I mean, they had quite attractive levels of yield, and you know, it was an asset. It was a you know real asset, really, if you will. It was a, an aircraft that they owned, obviously leased out to various airlines. In this case, uh, Thai Airways. There was a few that went to Dubai-based airlines. Um, but, you know, clearly there was a couple of elements to it. One, at the end of these lease arrangements, which were invariably on a kind of 10 to 12 year basis, what would be the value of the aircraft at the end point? And then obviously they were hit by the pandemic quite hard, which saw uh, a number of these aircrafts grounded. They had to come to some arrangements with the various airlines in question, how they, those leases would continue to be serviced. And then there's still the question of the ongoing value of the aircraft. So it's just been a, a really, really difficult asset class to be involved with. And, and you know, as I mentioned, quite highly geared and, and trading on a big discount. Yes. And I noticed just looking at the details of this one, uh, I'm just reading this off the AIC website. It doesn't have a fixed life, this company, but the articles require the directors to convene a liquidity proposal meeting no later than June 2026. So that's still some way away. Uh, which a liquidity proposal in the form of an ordinary resolution will be put forward proposing that the company should proceed to an orderly wind-up at the end of the term of the leases. And if that's not possible, they have to look for some alternative solution. Uh, but essentially, I mean, this looks to me like this is they've got these two aircraft still. Uh, unless they can find some resolution, this one is eventually just going to disappear into the sunset, presumably uh, at some point in the not too distant future. Would that be a fair summary, do you think? Or do you think there's something they can pull out of the bag here to, to keep this thing going? Well, it's one of these areas that I'm sure there'll be some very you know, specialist investors, some real value-orientated players will kind of crawl over it. I mean, it's trading at two and a half cents. It's got a market cap of about $5 million. So this really is quite de minimis. I suspect the uh, the volume behind it is very, very limited indeed. So there will be some people who will spend quite some time trawling through this and kind of ascribing values uh, and all the rest of it. But it's uh, it's a little bit in the lap of the gods, I suspect. Okay, well, perhaps we should move on from that. It's a rather unfortunate story there of an interesting, innovative idea that has not worked out well because of, to a large extent, external events. But uh, we'll move on and we'll talk about results now. And uh, we can kick off in the global sector with Bankers Investment Trust, ticker BNKR, which has been around for quite a long time. 
tell us what they've had to say in terms of their performance, Simon. Yeah, so these are interim results for the six months to the end of April. NAV total return in that time was down about 5.6%. That compared with a decline of 2.6% for the FTSE World Index. In share price terms, they were down about 6.3%. Obviously, the discount widened a little during that time. But the underperformance was attributed to negative stock selection, particularly in China, and also the fact that the portfolio was underweight US equities. They have been buying back some shares in this particular period. They bought back about 4.2 million shares at an average discount of 6%. They also gave some colour in terms of the revenue that the portfolio generated. That was up from 0.97p to 1.08p. And actually, they declared dividends of 1.128p for the period. And in fact, they're uh, forecasting dividend growth for their full financial year. That forecast has been increased from 3% to 5%. I think probably the other thing to note is that uh, Alex Crook of Janice Henderson has been responsible for this one since 2003, so quite a, a long time now. But Mike Curley, who people might know best as the uh, investment manager of Henderson Far East Income, has been appointed deputy manager of bankers. So he's been involved in this investment trust for quite some time because he's been responsible for the Pacific element, the Pacific uh, sub-portfolio effectively. But he's kind of had promotion, if you will, and become the, the deputy portfolio manager. Okay. And so Bankers is in the global sector, obviously. And uh, it's been going since, uh, I know you know this off the top of your head, Simon, it's been going since 1888. And <laughs> <laughs> so um, is it a dividend hero? Is it one of the IASU's dividend heroes? Does it uh, have a dividend record going back some way or not? I'm going to say yes. I haven't got the numbers to hand, but I'm going to say it's not only is it an AIC dividend hero, I think it's probably a 50-year-plus dividend hero. Okay. But uh, no doubt you will kind of rummage through the Investment Trust Handbook and correct me if I've got this wrong. I will. I'm going to rummage right now. And you are right. It is the second longest, uh, or the one with the second longest record after City of London, along with uh, Alliance and Caledonia. 54 years There we go. dividend increases. Okay, so, well, they uh, didn't have their best year last year, let's put it that way. And their revenue was slightly behind the, the dividend payments. So not a great year for them, but they will have used their reserves, I'm sure. Let's talk about Schroeder UK Midcap next. We're moving into the UK sector, ticker SCP. And they've had some interim results for the six months to the 31st of March. That's right. In that time, they saw an NAV total return down about 11.4%. That compared with a decline of 9%. For their benchmark, the share price total return that actually came in negative 18.2%, so a more significant underperformance. And that was a reflection of the fact the discount widened from 8% to 15%. So, certainly a tough period. So, this is Andy Bruff and Gene Roach responsible for this one. Obviously, as the name would suggest, it's focused on the mid cap segment of the UK market and a real emphasis on what they describe as future market leaders. But effectively, performance was hurt by not owning companies such as Centrica and Drax. And also they had a couple of holdings that did detract. So 888 or 888 holdings and Genus probably amongst those names. But they have declared an interim dividend of 5p per share. That was up 32% year on year and it was fully covered by earnings. They also had about net gearing at the period end of about 9% and they'd increase that from 8% at the start of the period. So as its name suggests, it's a focus mainly on the mid cap and the mid cap along with the small cap are both taking a bit of a beating this year. So it's no doubt the performance is not dissimilar to that of some of the others. Uh, there's a JP Morgan mid cap fund and uh, 
I guess, would you include Mercantile in the same group or not, or is that slightly different? No, we, we tend to include the JP Morgan mid-cap, Mercantile and Schroeder UK mid-cap, all in the kind of same subsector. I mean, Mercantile can invest in smaller companies as well, but there's probably about 70-80% in the mid-cap. Okay, and uh, they've all been struggling for the same reason we talked about several times, certainly in the last six months or so. Okay, we're going back overseas now, and we're going to look at some overseas trusts, and we're going to kick off with BlackRock Sustainable American Income Trust, BRSA, who've had interims for the six months to the end of April. And they saw an NAV total return up 6% in that period. That compared with a rise of 4.9% for their benchmark, which is the Russell 1000 value index. So they outperformed. In share price terms, they did even better, actually, up 8% as the discount narrowed. And that outperformance, that NAV outperformance, was attributed to the market shift towards value. So it's worth noting on this one, actually, they adopted this sustainable investment approach that was in July last year. And what we've seen from that is that it has hit their revenue. So their revenue per share was actually down 29% period on period. So it came in at 1.82p. Despite that, they maintained the dividends at 4p. And that revenue decrease was driven by the repositioning in relation to the new sustainable investment approach, as well as the decision to stop writing options. So uh, raising additional income by selling some market upside. Indeed. So, well, that's interesting in one way, because um, a lot of people have come to the view that uh, funds that pursue a, a sort of sustainable approach, they tend to have more of a growth bias than a value bias. But uh, in this particular case, uh, the managers are saying that the performance has benefited from the, the market shift of value. So uh, presumably they are fairly uh, style agnostic compared to some of the other sustainable trusts out there. And let's talk about CC Japan Income and Growth, ticker CCJI. They've had uh, same period, six months to the 30th of April. And they also outperformed, actually. The NAV total return was down about 0.7%, but that compared with a decline of 7.8% for the Topics Index. Not quite so good in share price terms. They were down about 3.7% as the discount widened from about 7% to 10%. But again, the outperformance of this particular investment trust was helped by the market rotation from growth to value. So they had some long-standing holdings in the financials, wholesale and telecommunications sectors that did well for it. Conversely, some of the holdings in domestic businesses detracted. But the revenue return per share came in at 2.37p. That was up 7% period on period, and they declared an interim dividend of 1.4p per share. So in other words, that was geared. The net gearing at the period end stood at 21%. But it's worth noting that this is, so it's Coupland Cardiff responsible for this particular portfolio, Richard Aston, the manager. Um, it's quite a concentrated portfolio. So 38 stocks at the end of May, uh, the top 10 represented about 48%. Okay, next we can talk about uh, Chelverton UK Dividend Trust. This is ticker SDV. This is a pretty small trust. I mean, it's less than 50 million, I think, in terms of market cap and, uh, and indeed uh, net assets. And uh, they've had some annual results for the year to 30 April. This one tends to be uh, a very volatile animal, I seem to recall, from days gone by. Yeah, and well, the NAV was down about 12.6% in this period. That compared with a decline of 15.2% for the MSCI small cap index. Uh, share price terms down about 12.5%. But I think your comment is correct. It has a zero dividend preference share, so it has kind of structural gearing that has a life to 2025. And obviously, as the name would suggest, the yield, the dividend is an important part of the story here. So the ordinary dividend was increased from 10p in the previous year to 11p. 
but reserves were utilised in order to achieve that. So they've got about 9p of reserves left. Uh, they also didn't pay a special dividend, whereas they had in their previous year. Their guidance for their 2023 financial year dividend is to, quote, very likely exceed, but in any event will not be less than the dividend level for this current year, the financial 22 dividend. Okay, so now we can move on and talk about uh, private equity. We've talked a lot about private equity and whether or not what's been going on there, whether the uh, share prices have caught up with the latest NAVs, which always come out with a lag, or whether the, the, the falls we've seen actually reflect the NAV adjustments that will have to be made in many cases. But let's talk about uh, Aberdeen Private Equity Opportunities, ticker APEO. They've had some interim results for the six months to the 31st of March. So uh, tell us how their numbers look. So interim results for the six months to the end of March. In that time, they saw an NAV total return up 6.8% compared to a rise of 4.7% for the FTSE All share. And perhaps a little bit surprising, the share price was positive as well. The share price total return came in at 5.8%. So the valuation of the portfolio, that was up 8.7% on an unrealized constant currency basis. So if, in other words, when you kind of strip out the various currency moves and the valuations were supported by earnings growth, so this idea that although the comparable multiples uh, might have declined a little bit over the period, they're actually the underlying portfolio is seeing uh, some positive earnings uplifts. The listed element of the portfolio, so listed investments acted as a bit of a headwind, and that represented 9% of the portfolio at the end of March. And that element saw an average decline of 22%. And this is quite a familiar story across the listed private equity fund space. A number of them have been left with exposure to listed companies. And that's been a function of the fact that these were a recent batch of IPOs, particularly in the second half of last year, and they've been particularly badly hit. That's certainly the case for Aberdeen Private Equity Opportunities. But overall, the portfolio is probably about 1.1 billion of uh, net assets now. Now, they've got total outstanding commitments. Uh, they stood about 627 million at the end of March, and they made new commitments during this six-month period, which totaled £240 million, and that will include secondaries, new primary commitments, a whole range of things in here. They also saw some positive distributions as well. That came in at £121 million, and they made some secondary sales as well, raising an additional £16 million. But this portfolio has moved on in recent years, so you know, turn the clock back probably four or five years, and this was one of the few kind of funder funds that weren't involved in co-investments. That has changed. In fact, at the end of March, they had 22 co-investments in the portfolio, representing about 17%. Now, why is that significant? It's because they don't have the same kind of fee arrangements. So they're kind of more attractive on a fee basis. And it enables the investment team to kind of focus their capital a little bit more. So actually, rather than just follow the primary commitments, they can direct that a little bit more. So that's certainly picked up. And in fact, the maximum level for co-investments has uh, been increased from 20% to 25%. But at the end of March, the fund was pretty much fully invested. It was sitting on a small bit of cash, about £2 million or so. And they'd drawn down about £24 million on a £200 million bank facility. I guess we should quickly just revisit this issue of whether or not fund-to-fund type private equity funds be more subject to discount uh, widening than those that uh, invest directly or co-invest. Is that actually what's happened? I mean, this one has not been immune from the discount movement, I, uh, I'm i sure. Well, in fact, I know looking at the uh, the share price drop, I can see that very clearly. But uh, is that a generally fair comment to make or not? Well, no, certainly the funder funds have been derated and probably been derated more 
than their peers in the kind of more direct private equity world. That's probably fair to say. I mean, Aberdeen Private Equity Opportunities Trust, I've got it on about a 35% discount at the moment. That compares to an average of a 23% discount over the previous 12 months. What I think would be an accurate observation is that the fund of funds have probably traded at a wider discount than the more direct names. So when we talk about direct private equity, we're talking about names such as HG Capital and Apex and Princess, names such as that. And one of the reasons why that might have been the case is because of the fees. Um, invariably, you're putting fees on fees with these fund of funds. And some of the kind of wealth managers have had an issue with that. Private equity is an expensive asset class. And if you kind of double up the fee layer, then it can look quite prohibitive. Those people in the private equity world would point out that actually their returns over the longer term justify that fees level. But that's an argument. But certainly... Uh, the discounts are wide on the fund of funds at the moment. I mean, you look down the list, Pantheon International, quite a mainstream private equity vehicle on a 45% discount at the moment. ICG Enterprise, 41%. Harbourvest, 44%. So this is an area of the marketplace that has been quite beaten up so far this year. Indeed. Well, I guess there's a, a question also of, uh, you know, what is happening to the value of your unquoted investments. You've not only got the fact that is a general phenomenon when the markets are falling, but you've also got the fact that you're not entirely sure whether the, the funds are investing in quite what they're doing to reflect the valuations as well. So you've got a kind of double effect there, potentially. And let's talk about uh, Chrysalis. Next, Chrysalis Investments, ticker CHRY. That also is on a big discount, as we know. Interim results for six months, the 31st of March. Uh, and this has been a pretty tough year for Chrysalis in particular, even compared to some of the other uh, private equity uh, trusts. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, in NAV terms, it's down 16% in that six-month period. The share price was down 34%. But it, you're right, if you look at it kind of year to date, calendar year to date, it'll be a lot worse than that. But certainly in this particular period, the NAV decline reflects the weakening valuation of listed peers in the tech sector. Um, they saw some realizations, which we're already aware about. So the sale of Embark Group, uh, they also made some follow-on investments. Uh, but net-net, they had net realizations of about £33 million or so. But they provided some colour about the portfolio. So apparently 40% of the portfolio is already profitable. And that includes uh, the kind of major unit within Starling Bank, which is their largest holding. But they are very much focused on supporting the elements of the portfolio that are not profitable, that probably do need more cash to get through this period. So there's a lot of talk about cash runways at the moment in kind of unquoted or private equity land. And apparently the average cash runway for unprofitable companies in the Christmas investments portfolio is about 14 months or so. So I, I seem to remember back in the day, people talked about cash burn in the kind of post-tech booms. Well, we don't talk cash burn anymore. We talk cash runways. So what Chrysalis have said is that they're, they're sitting on about cash of £55 million at the moment. And the idea is that rather than buy back their own shares, which are on a big 40, 45% plus discount, they're going to look to support their existing portfolio companies. That's the priority. And just to remind people, the key holdings, certainly at the end of March, including Starling Bank, that was 21% of assets, Klarna, 19%, WeFox, 11 and Smart Pension. 9%. Actually, on two other points I think worth making is that the chairman in the in the commentary made the point that there's been some press speculation that Klarna is uh, looking to raise more money at a lower level, uh, a down round effectively, whereas WeFox uh, is looking to raise additional capital at a, a kind of up round. But that's not reflected in these NAV valuations. That will be reflected as and when it happens. And the final point to make is uh, we discussed probably at the start of this year about the performance fee that was generated 
in their financial year to the end of September last year, and the board made it clear they wanted to kind of address that. This is a work in progress, effectively. They've been talking to shareholders and they're working with the good people at Jupiter about this. And still, we don't know the results of this, but it will probably not be effective until the next financial year. Well, I guess if I was a cynic, which of course I'm not, I'm a huge enthusiast for the investment trust sector, I would say this looks a little bit like a case of closing the stable door after the horse has bolted, <laughs> given what happened last year. But anyway, at least they're doing they're addressing the issue anyway, which I think is uh, a good thing, of course. Let's talk next about ICG Enterprise Trust, ticker CGT, sorry, ICGT, I should say. And they've just done a, a short uh, quarterly update, I think. That's right. And, and a positive set of numbers, actually. An NAV total return of 4.5% in that period, though perhaps unsurprisingly, the share price was down about 6.7%. But certainly the underlying portfolio seems to be kind of operating quite well. The portfolio return on a local currency basis was up about 2%. And it's a decent sized portfolio, actually, about £1.2 billion. It was valued at at the end of April, of which quoted investments represented 9%, so not dissimilar to the the Aberdeen fund that we talked about earlier. They are making new investments uh, and they're also seeing some realisations. And actually, this is something... I mean, there's a couple of elements of private equity. Valuations are obviously not unimportant, although there is always a bit of volatility that because there is a kind of mark-to-market element that comes through the comparables. So I think it's always worth more focused on the earnings. Uh, But the second element is how much investment activity is going on. And certainly from the Aberdeen results and now ICG Enterprise, you can see that there are deals being done, obviously not to the same level that we saw last year when it really was a crackerjack year for private equity in general but there's still activity going on. In fact, um, talking to Alan Gold, the, the investment manager of the Aberdeen Fund, he made the point that they're starting to see public-to-private deals uh, coming to the forefront. So this idea that private equity participants sitting on quite a lot of dry powder have cash to burn are taking advantage of the attractive valuation levels that they're seeing in public markets uh, for various obvious reasons and, and happy to kind of cherry-pick what they deem to be the, the best companies. So just looking across these three, we might just quickly compare the discounts on these three just to see uh, who's trading where. Obviously, the NAVs are not all at the same date, last one we heard, but uh, tell us how they look at the moment and your numbers. Well, they're all on big discounts. I think that's probably the key takeaway. Aberdeen, as I mentioned, on about a 35% discount. ICG Enterprise, 41%. But Chrysalis wins in the the widest discount stakes. I've got it on about a 47% discount at the moment. Okay, so always the question is, is that uh, a fair reflection of reality or is that an opportunity or are things going to get worse before they get better? We shall see. Now we can move on and talk about some specialist trusts next. And we're going to kick off with one that I'm sure has done pretty well recently, and that is Geiger Counter, ticker GCL. They've had some interim results for the six months to 31st of March. I mean, these guys are in the uranium business, I think. They are. And to your point, the NAV was up by just short of 26% in that six-month period. The share price up 25%, and that compares with a rise of 7% for the Selective Uranium Pure Play Index. Uh, The NAV increase was driven by nuclear-friendly policies, following on from COP26, and uranium price increases following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They also saw an NAV uplift following the IPO of Ivanhoe Electric. They managed to raise some additional capital, about six, seven million pounds or so. I mean, it's a relatively small specialist fund. This one I've got a bit on a market cap of about fifty-five million pounds, and quite a, a concentrated portfolio. I think there's about fifty-six percent of the portfolio 
was in five holdings at the end of March. CQS are responsible for this one, Keith Watson and Robert Crayford. Yes, there's a good reminder that however bad things are, there's always some people who are going to be in the right place and doing well. Let's move on and talk about Next Energy Solar Fund, ticker NESF. They've produced their annual results to the end of March, similarly. And uh, what do those results look like? Yeah, a decent set of results, actually. So the NAV total return was up 22%. Certainly, they benefited from all the things you'd expect them to benefit from, frankly. So the increasing power price forecast assumptions, the updates of short-term inflation assumptions. And so they've given quite a lot of detail around that. Their total installed capacity was up about 6% in that period. And they've got 99 fully operational assets. Their power generation was up about 2% or so above budget in the period. It would have been even higher, but there was a bit of disruption during the period. What does this all mean for shareholders? Well, they paid out 16p's worth of dividends over the year. That was 1.2 times cash covered. And in fact, they've increased their dividend target for the financial year to 2023, that's up to 7.52p, so up 5%. And again, their estimate is that dividend cover will come in about 1.3 to 1.5 times. So a positive story from Next Energy Solar Fund. Uh, just quickly on that one, and when we talked earlier about the fact when the all the solar funds went to discounts effectively at one point, and uh, we said that looked like an interesting opportunity. And so it's proved for some of them and Bluefield Solar in particular has done particularly well and raised some more money recently. So uh, how is uh, this one doing, Next Energy Solar, compared to some of the others out there? Must be offering quite a decent yield now. Yeah, so I've got the yield on about 6.5% on a historic basis. I mean, I've got them on a small discount, about 2% or so. Um, and it, I think it was trading around NAV. But if you remember about a month or so ago, there was the FT article about the possibility of tax on energy producers. And I think Next Energy Solar was one that was mentioned. It was certainly one that saw its share price take a bit of a hit as a result of that. It hasn't quite fully recovered at the moment. So on a, on a small discount at present. Okay, next up we have uh, SDCL Energy Efficiency Income Trust, ticker SEIT. They've had some annual results uh, for the 31st of March. That's right. They saw an NAV total return of 11.2% in that 12-month period. So that was obviously a good result. The portfolio valuation was up about 16%. Overall came in at £928 million. So what benefited them? Well, it was the increase in short-term inflation assumptions. Uh, They also had some currency gains as well. They also saw a reduction in discount rates, certainly on some of the the projects. But the overall unlevered weighted average discount rate remained at about 7%. But they made investments totaling about £305 million over the year. And in fact, they've made more since the end of March, about £37 million or so. So certainly a busy period for investment activity. They did raise additional equity of about £350 million over that 12-month period. But they've declared a dividend of 5.62p in relation to that year. And that dividend cover came in at just short of 1.2 times. And their dividend target going forward has actually increased 7% 7% to 6p, so certainly offering a reasonably attractive yield, just short of about 4, 4.8% or so at the moment. Okay, and we mentioned this is certainly the most successful of these energy efficiency trusts. We mentioned Aquila Energy Efficiency had some issues about getting invested, and there's a triple point one as well. And of course, some of these other trusts that also are beginning to invest in the same kind of idea, it's all part of this energy transition idea that energy efficiency could be just as effective a way of making a transition to a net zero world as 
renewable energy might be. But uh, in terms of what you get for your money here, uh, in terms of the yield, I mean, it's a lot lower yield than you'd get for a solar fund, for example. Yeah, I've got around about a 4.8% historic dividend yield at the moment. I mean, Aquila Energy Efficiency Trust hasn't actually paid a dividend at present, but triple point energy efficiency infrastructure, that's got a yield of about 6.2%, but it's a much smaller vehicle, about £89 million market cap or so. So let's move on and talk about a couple of commercial property trusts. And we're going to kick off, first of all, with Civitas Social Housing, ticker CSH. They've produced their annual results for the year to 31st of March 2022. Unfortunately for them, it was quite a difficult year for them in terms of they had a short seller attack and the share price came under pressure. But uh, what do the actual results look like? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because the results wouldn't necessarily, the headlines kind of give that impression that there was anything untoward going on. So if you actually look at their NAV return in that 12-month period, they were up just short of 2%. The NAV went from 108 spot 3p to 110 spot 3p. In terms of the share price return, the share price total return came in about 3% or so. But you're right. I mean, it had a real roller coaster during the year, just to remind people, This all dates back to an article, I think, that the Sunday Times published originally in September last year, picking up on concerns from the regulator of social housing about the mismatch in terms of the the lease levels between the housing associations, who are the kind of effectively the clients of Civitas Social Housing, and the pressure that they're under from long leases and increasing rents. In addition to which, uh, Shadowfall Capital, a short seller, made some allegations about some of the disclosure or lack of from various directors. So as a result of that, the share price did come off markedly. It still hasn't really recovered. I've got it on about 79.1p at the moment. During this 12-month period, they did uh, initiate a buyback program. About 10 million shares were bought back, uh, and that added about a quarter of a penny to the fund's NAV. Um, The property value was up 5.8% in the financial year. I mean, it's a substantial portfolio valued at £969 million. And in fact, they made some more acquisitions during this 12-month period. 77 properties acquired for £31 million. Um, Then they had a reasonable level of uh, gearing at the end of the year. Loan-to-value came in at 34%. But in terms of the earnings side of it, again, it's still generating quite a bit of income. So the EPRA Earnings per share came at 4.82p. Dividends totaling 5.5p were paid. That was in line with target and up from 5.4p in the previous financial year. So the actual dividend cover came in about 87%, although the investment team made the point that by the end of the year end, uh, the run rate had gone back to about 97%. Oh, and in fact, just covering off the dividend, finally, they've raised their dividend target for their 2023 financial year to 5.7p. So that gives them about a 7.1% yield on the current share price. Also, and and we were already aware of this, we talked about this before, but the managers have proposed a new regulatory clause to help counterparties achieve regulatory compliance. That's still kind of working progress. They're still implementing that and they're also in conversation to the with the regulators as well. Yeah, so it has been a very interesting story, this one, and a, and a, and a painful one for the trust and indeed for its shareholders. I mean, I'm just looking here. 7th of August last year, I think was around then anyway, was the all-time high in the share price. And that was around 119p, I think. And it was trading at a premium in those days of about, what was it, about 10% or 7 or 8% premium. And it's gone all the way back down to 79p or 80p or whatever it is now. And it's trading on this big discount. So essentially... I mean, the the company came out quite strongly when these allegations first appeared and made a kind of robust defence. 
uh, but it appears that the market just isn't buying it for the moment, at least. I mean, that must be the conclusion, just looking at the numbers. Well, certainly the share price hasn't recovered, as you correctly observed. Um, and that's despite the fact that they've they've run this buyback program. They bought back 10 million shares, which is not insubstantial. You know, and they're still paying their dividends as well. As I said, they're yielding, should they hit their target dividend for their current and therefore next financial year, they're yielding over 7%. So there's a, a little bit of a disconnect there. I mean, certainly the share price would suggest that the market doesn't quite trust where things are at the moment, that faith has been shaken and certainly not restored. So it's it's a bit of a long haul back for Civitas, one suspects. Yes, I mean, they talk about introducing a new clause to help the counterparties achieve regulatory compliance. And, you know, if that was successful, that would, I guess, I mean, the real concern is that if the regulator was to really get tough on these housing associations or one of the housing associations got into trouble and so on and couldn't pay, that, uh, you know, what Civitas Social Housing has lost is this confidence that it's got these long-term renewable inflation-linked payments coming in. And it's the lack of the confidence in the long-term nature of these things that I guess is undermining their case at the moment. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, at some point, if they ever crack this particular problem, then the shares would look like a very good bargain, would they not? Well, I mean, you make the point about inflation cover, and it's just worth reminding people that 100% of the rents are inflation-linked, index-linked, effectively a third, uh, subject to CPI plus 4%. But, you know, in theory, that should be quite attractive. But one suspects that the way back for Civitas is to come to kind of some kind of resolution with the regulator that they can get some kind of statement of confidence or faith from the regulator saying that the business model is sound. But, you know, we'll have to see. I suspect a lot of work will have to go into that until we get to that stage. And in the meantime, of course, with the share price at this big discount, they're not really in a strong position to raise new money and continue to expand, which is what they, I think they were hoping to do, because they're obviously they're engaged in a very uh, important area. Social housing is a concern. So for those who, you know, who like to invest in companies that are doing good, that would be a, a missed opportunity, if you like, to carry on doing the work they are doing and providing social housing to those who need it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I suspect that's probably the conversation they're having with the regulator. They're probably making this very point that, you know, if, if the regulator and the powers that be want capital, private money to come into this area, then it's it's got to kind of work for everyone. So it's kind of finding a way through it. But certainly what happened last year has, has caused a huge amount of damage to the, the reputation of the company. And it's just really... Um, finding a way back from that. Okay, so we'll move on from that and we're going to talk finally about a trust called Ground Rents Income, ticker G-R-I-O. They've had some interim results for six months, the 31st of March. And this trust is not, uh, well, it's probably trading on a bigger discount than Civitas Social Housing. What's the story over this one? Yeah, unfortunately, this is another problem child, really. So uh, let's cover off the numbers. The NAV per share was down 10% in that six-month period to the end of March. Uh, NAV total return down about 7.8%. And that was despite the fact they ran a buyback program to bought about 0.8 million shares back to smaller fund. It's got a market cap of about 55 million. But the risk here is that the UK government's proposed amendments to the building safety bill will place ultimate liability on the current building owners. Now, this has led to the adoption of a material valuation uncertainty clause and an 8% fall in the portfolio value over that half year period to 110 million pounds the valuation also includes a negative adjustment of just short of five million pounds to reflect the risk and uncertainty associated with leasehold reform so it's a kind of double whammy impact on this one 
The recurring underlying earnings uh, were actually up 2.7% and the dividend was fully covered. Dividends totaling 1.5p per share were declared uh, and that compares with 2p in the comparable period in 2021. The loan to value ratio at the period end uh, stood about 19%. Uh, This fund has got a continuation vote due to take place no later than August 2023. However, in light of the uncertainty, consideration has been given to extending that continuation vote timetable for a limited period. So it really is, as I say, a double whammy. Ground rents income, a very specialist property play, and it's part of the Schroeder stable as well. I guess the only comment to make here is that uh, in many cases with some of these alternative asset trusts, uh, not necessarily this one, but uh, you have the benefit of dealing with a counterparty that is the government or local authorities or something where who are in a position to make long-term commitments to payments. But on the other side, you you always run the risk that legislation is going to change or, or regulatory practice is going to change or something like that is going to change. And that is something which is outside your control. So you have to weigh up those risks. And uh, I guess the message here is that in this particular case, if you like, the regulatory background is not working to their advantage here, or at least concerns about it are not working to their advantage. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. And again, you've got to when you when you see an investment company that's trading on a discount in this case of about forty three percent, it's worth doing your homework and understanding why it might be at that kind of level. I mean, it's got a yield on a historic basis of five point six percent. So that in itself is not unattractive. But you've really got to understand the investment case here and, and what's going on. Indeed. Well, unfortunately, we have to end on that note. Finishing with a couple of trusts which are not. Well, many trusts are not performing very well so far this year, but here's a couple where they've had some specific problems which are wider than just what's happening in the in the markets overall, financial markets overall, and the external environment of rising bond yields, higher interest rates, and as we discussed, central bank policy tightening and so on, all these other factors conspiring as well to uh, make this a very tough six-month period for the investment trust sector overall, I think, with the exception of some alternative assets and uh, of course, renewable energy and things like that, which are in the in the sweet spot. It's been a pretty tough year, as we said, and uh, the first half performance this year of the, the American market down the most since 1970. That's almost, well, Simon, I'm not going to embarrass you by saying that's almost before you were born. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely before I was yeah. born. Absolutely. A long time. A long time Indeed. before I was born. Indeed. And 1970, well, 1970 is a very interesting year for the market. I mean, I was around at that point, but uh, I wasn't actually actively engaged in following the market at that age. I was a student, rather wasting my time. But um, 1970 was a very interesting period because it came at the end of this sort of go-go years, what I call the go-go years, where we had a lot of enthusiasm in the market, very similar to what happened with the TMT bubble and more recently uh, after the pandemic. You know, everybody got very bullish suddenly and it all everything seemed to be going well. We we're all celebrating, you know, Woodstock and the Festival of Love and all that kind of good thing. And then it all went very badly wrong. Uh, but interestingly, the um, the stock market, you know, did fall quite substantially from 1970 to 1972. But then there was another there was another peak in 72. And then it entered into this terrible bear market in the mid 70s. So we really hope we don't go back there again, is all I'm trying to say. <laughs> if that was a precedent, it's not... Uh, particularly encouraging but we'll have to uh, keep our eyes peeled for what does happen next so simon thank you for your time this week and we'll look forward to speaking again next week thank you this has been a money makers investment trust podcast these podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels 
you can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.